Welcome everyone to the Modern Day Overthinker Podcast. My name is Colin and I am your host. This week's episode is with Liv Caro. Liv Caro is the president of QC Harm Reduction, Quad City Harm Reduction here locally, where I am located in the Quad Cities. I am located in Davenport, Iowa, for those who are listening from other areas. We discuss some of the, well, what harm reduction is and what's going on and what she's doing and what others in the harm reduction community are doing, as well as some of the misconceptions, why she started doing it. She's also a therapist, so we talked about her day-to-day and what she specializes in. She talked about that, and also trends that she's noticed with some of her patients. So that was very interesting. The whole conversation was interesting. A lot of uh, great perspective and a overall good conversation. So really don't need to explain much else on this episode. It's a smooth one. I'm really glad Liv took the time to come over. We had never met in person. She came over to a stranger's house. So shout out to her for that. I'm glad we were able to have a great conversation, an informative conversation, that I think everyone can appreciate. So without further ado, this is episode number 56 with Liv Caro. podcast my name is colin i'm your host uh welcome if you're watching on video this is the first time doing video so bear with me here uh today i have Liv caro in the studio today and which i can say in the studio today because i'm actually using the room that i wanted to make my studio so i appreciate you being here and taking some time on the sunday i'm glad we didn't do it later because of the super bowl i didn't i didn't know you were from philly so yeah i mean i'm I'm from Trenton, which is like 40 minutes away from Philly. But yeah, it's close enough. It's like we're Philly team city, you know. Yeah, who else would you root for? So. Yeah, not not New York, that's for sure. Not New York. No. So when did you when did you migrate to the Quad Cities then? Um, I've been in the Quad Cities since like 2016. Okay. I moved to the I moved to Iowa City in 2015. I was there for a year and then came out here. Um, following a golden goose basically you know like uh, i just had a i had a relationship that kind of got me out here and then i ended up staying for lots of reasons but um mostly because i like living here yeah yeah it's good it's a change of pace for me but i'm sort of like here now yeah you're locked in Uh uh-huh yeah (laughs) because once you get involved with something in the community yeah you yeah it's not easy to leave, if, even if you wanted to. No, I mean, how many times in your life are you going to move cities, you know? Like, it's, yeah. it starts getting kind of old, so. I've yeah. thought about it, but I, like, now that I have a house and, mm-hmm. you know, I have a lot of, I've acquired a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I don't 
just for the sake of moving, I don't want to move. Yeah. I, I also got a house here and that's kind of my anchor point, you know? Yeah. Time. Yeah. So you are the president of QC Harm Reduction and that has been your title for how long have you been doing that? Um, about almost like a year and a half now. Okay. Yeah. So I'm the board president. Um, we currently are kind of existing without an executive director. Okay. So, um, between different members of the board and the staff, we kind of fill in those functions. So, so I do a few of the functions of an ED, but mostly, um, right now my, my main kind of focal point is just getting us funding for the next year to, okay. to keep getting funding and writing grants and stuff. So yeah. Um, I've been working with them. Yeah. A year and a half. I've been president before that. I kind of came in and out as a volunteer and, I was also formerly on the board of um, Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition, which is based in Iowa City and Cedar Rapids. Okay. So, yeah, I was in the board So that's more of a statewide thing. Yep. And that was really, um, I mean, Kim Brown started Quad Cities Harm Reduction in 2015, I believe. And right after that is when Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition kind of got off the ground. And, um, I mean, really before that, I don't think there was anyone doing it in the state of Iowa. So... It's been pretty interesting, like just seeing it get off the ground with like the way that policy has also been going in Iowa in that time frame. Yeah, yeah. Iowa has <laughs> is one of those. We're one of those states that we we play catch up with a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, it's changed a lot even in the time I've been here, uh, socially and politically, and oh, yeah. you know, a lot of things have changed obviously all around the country, but. Um, the, the level of friendliness toward um, drug users and drug policy really has been pretty consistently, you know, grade D minus here. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, we also work in Illinois, which is different, a huge contrast. Um, and in a lot of ways, like Illinois is easier to function in because we are, um, I can just jump right into this if you want, but like yeah. Iowa and Illinois um, have really different regulations around naloxone or narcan and syringe distribution so basically in iowa um legally distributing syringes or doing a syringe exchange is like not a thing like okay. it is a hundred percent underground if we're doing it okay um narcan is also regulated really differently so basically like distributing narcan as an org is kind of iffy it's in a gray area yeah um while in Illinois, Illinois state is like providing Narcan, right? And they're also like a big, like, like legal needle state. Like there are, there's state funding for needle exchange. There's state funding for overdose prevention. Um, and then in Iowa, it seems like a lot of that funding gets funneled into like prevention campaigns and sort of like informational campaigns rather than actual um, outreach. Yeah, actual <laughs> on the ground. Like yeah face-to-face stuff yeah it's just harder to harder to pull off and on the other hand though illinois has like drug-induced homicide laws that iowa doesn't have yet so it's there's some differences that are pretty significant in this area um even like stuff like being on the border yeah i mean it's wild to see how different things are handled um in each state and how we have to kind of pivot to meet wherever we're working you know yeah that's got to be 
a challenge. Yeah. It's to put it lightly. It's far out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for somebody who doesn't really know what harm reduction is, say somebody's watching this or listening and they're just mm-hmm. like, I have no idea what you're talking about. What yeah. is a a very straightforward way of explaining harm reduction? Um, I mean, one of the slogans that I really like to sort of start this out is like any positive change, right? So, so conventionally drug and alcohol treatment would focus on abstinence, like complete yeah. abstinence, right, as the goal. And harm reduction shifts that, broadens that focus to be like any positive change that incru- improves health outcomes and preserves life. So like, you know, we use, I, we, we deal with syringes a lot because that's actually where, where harm reduction got started. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first thing I think of. Yeah, harm reduction got started um, it kind of kind of came with um, the HIV, you know, rights like movement advocacy, HIV advocacy, um, where that's you know in San Francisco and New York, mm-hmm. they there were some groups that started looking at health outcomes for you know people with HIV, right? Like what are the things that are making this spread? What are the things that are making this harder to survive? And um, obviously, sharing syringes is a huge issue with HIV and oh, hepatitis. Yeah. So. Um, the idea there, right, like the harm reduction approach to syringe use is, well, obviously people aren't just going to stop using drugs because we tell them to, right? Doesn't so work let's, that, way. that doesn't work that way. So let's no. let's make them healthier. Let's make using drugs slightly healthier and easier to survive. Yeah, if they're going to do it, <laughs> yeah. have them do it healthier. Like people use drugs, they're going to do it anyway. We accept that, right? And I think that's the big chance, the Acceptance. big challenge that harm reduction prevent, like presents to other methods of you know treating addiction which is like we don't actually need you to stop doing anything we just need you to take care of yourself yeah you know and we're going to try to like provide means of taking care of yourself and your community um which is you know disease prevention overdose reversal overdose prevention um education around like disease spread and stuff so it's a public health intervention um we, you know, harm reductionists do recover, harm reduction participants do recover in the sense of like stop using, but um, you have to stay alive before you can recover. Oh, yeah. So that's really the, um, you know, that's another slogan is like dead, dead drug users don't recover. Exactly. So, so there's like, you know, basically you could say harm reduction is a, it's a, it's a method, it's a system of intervention. It's also a philosophy. Um, and I think the philosophy is um you know the capital H capital R harm reduction it's like it's an approach to looking at drug use and substance use and and seeing it holistically in the world rather than like this is an individual having a problem you know mm-hmm. what i mean yeah that is a good way that was a longer explanation than <laughs> than i needed You'll but buckle up you're going to get more of this i love it i love the detail uh, <laughs> i appreciate that yeah but one thing you know Cause I, uh, I've heard, you know, people not to, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second Mm -hmm. because I understand it, but Mm -hmm. there's people that are like, that think, you know, the, just specifically the needle exchange, like you're enabling these, Mm -hmm. these users and like, it's like, they have to look at the bigger picture is how I look at it. Like you're not looking at the bigger picture. I mean, I think even in a small picture frame, right, like that is just clearly untrue Um, because like 
what happens when there is no harm reduction or like when there is no syringe exchange, people are still using drugs at the same rates. They're dying at higher rates and they're, they're transmitting hepatitis and HIV and that's a stat. at higher rates. Yeah. These are stats. Like <laughs> yeah. this is like just the facts, right? So we're not, we're not here to say, um, yeah, Hey, everybody should start like putting drugs in their veins, right? That is not the goal of harm reduction. No. The goal is to take, show up at a place where that's already happening and provide services and supplies for people to do that more safely who are already doing it. Yeah. And, and actually the stats on harm reduction and syringe service providers are so positive, like all over, like there's, there's so much more, um, people, people feel more hopeful. They feel connected to something that they can trust. Um, you know, a lot of people in chaotic addiction or whatever we want to call it aren't connected to health providers they're not connected to social services they yeah, don't they're not safe. necessarily taking care of themselves obviously because that's not their main right but also need li- the stigma is so tremendous you know like yeah. you can't get any kind of treatment for anything unless you're you know quote clean um people don't want to deal with you yeah even housing right like housing and mental health services and stuff like that like people will avoid it if they're being stigmatized and judged for, for being in active use. And, um, you know, if they have a dependency, that's another barrier to a lot of kinds of things like, Oh yeah. Um, so, so there's a lot of stats that show that connecting to an SSP or harm reduction outreach group will increase your outcomes of like health and safety and like eventually maybe recovery of some sort and also like just staying alive. Yeah. Um, so it's it's generally seen as a very positive intervention once it's on the ground. But yeah, the uh, the enabling thing is like that's the number one argument I hear against. Oh yeah, that's what I, that's um, why I wanted to bring it up because I hear well, it. I've heard it before, and I'm like, yeah. And, and you hear that with like naloxone, like Narcan or naloxone, like people. What's be like, naloxone well, specifically? Naloxone is the chemical that is the active ingredient in Narcan. Narcan's just the brand name. Oh, and that's okay. what we all kind of know of is like Narcan, but um, Narcan reverses opiates. They they kick them off your brain opiate receptors so that mm-hmm. you are no longer in an overdose. Yeah. Um, and therefore you are alive. <laughs> I've known some people that are alive because of Narcan. Yeah, a lot of people, yeah. right? Like it's actually it works. Yeah. Um, so so there's this kind of argument around like, oh well, if we just are gonna Narcan people every time they overdose, then what's stopping them from from doing it? And it's like, well nothing actually they might do it again but like they get to stay alive another week or month or year to like determine if that's what they want to do you know and and i think i mean there's just actually no argument against widespread naloxone distribution in my mind like it's just it's like uh if we had you know i mean a lot of people compare it to epipens but it's like an epipen can save someone's life in an instant and we have the technology right it's it's not even like difficult you just do the thing right you yeah. have you have this medicine you give it to the person they are not and dead. there's a couple different ways to distribute it right mm-hmm. yeah like naloxone has um so we at ihr or uh, qchr we have intramuscular naloxone so it's a vial and you load a little intramuscular syringe and you inject it into somebody's leg or arm or whatever anywhere um and there's also a nasal Narcan spray. I've heard, yeah, I've heard about yeah that so Narcan brand name Narcan is a nasal spray. And uh, okay, brand name. Yeah, you put it in 
like kind of shoot it in somebody's nose and they breathe it in and then i thought you were saying no lock zone so i was like i was like what is no, <laughs> no lock zone not lock zone like at the beginning of the conversation yeah. i'm like oh okay yeah that yeah. is just the generic name of it mm-hmm. okay. naloxone yeah and um naloxone is really cheap it's really um easy to use it's easy to teach people to use um it's you know costs less than a dollar per vial i think um to to get it out into the community and like um there's also no side effect from using it so if you are not overdosing on opiates and you take yeah. lox like if That's somebody gives thing, you naloxone no. you're not gonna get hurt That's good. Yeah. Um, it might mean something else is going on that is bad, but like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's no, there's no side effect or secondary input from uh, naloxone that would hurt you. But yeah, I don't know the enabling thing. I mean, I think that kind of broadens out to like this idea that drug addiction or drug use is a personal moral failure. Yeah. And, and I think that's like a big point of challenge, mm-hmm. right? That like, drug use is a systemic societal issue and it's also a policy issue and like drug dependency and chaotic drug use are also like they're social problems they are not necessarily individuals failures um and i think in our in our culture we're starting to see a shift toward like seeing that picture like the big picture like why is this happening yeah you know um the, the traditional kind of approach to addiction is like well um, you, you did this to yourself and you need to get yourself out of it, right. With your own willpower and maybe the help of others, but like, it's your problem for you to solve. And I mean, I think the more we see the overdose crisis expand and claim more lives, right. The more it's like clear that that's not really working. Um, (laughs) it's just not working. Abstinence based, like, you know, coercive recovery is not working for everybody. And so, and, th- and that's the thing, too. Like, for some people, it does work. Yeah. For some people, going to prison helps them stay off drugs for the rest of their lives. But most people, they they go back to using. Mm. And they're at a higher risk group after that, you know? And some of it has to do yeah. with just the mental, mental health crisis, too. Like, we were talking about yeah. earlier, like, wanting to fix yourself and, want, and having that mm-hmm. solution. And, like, this is the only thing I know that right. works. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of people that encounter drugs before they ever encounter any kind of helpful person. Yeah. You know, like that's just our reality now. And not so, hard to find. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, I can like jump through all these hoops and pay a lot of money to try to see a therapist and that might not work. Or I can go like hang out with my friends and do what they're doing and they'll feel better and I'll feel better. And, you know, I think that's a simplified yeah idea, but like. Yeah, drugs are really accessible and effective treatment for them is not. <laughs> yes. And it's effective treatment for the underlying issues is not. And and more importantly, I think the situations and circumstances that, you know, encourage or like promote drug use are, are ubiquitous and like getting more. So um, you know, <laughs> it's it's pretty bleak actually. One but, thing I've noticed from because uh, I've volunteered at treatment centers mm-hmm. uh, around the area. And one thing I've noticed is like the majority of them push like one program mm-hmm. and that's it. Yeah. It's like there, yeah. there's one of them. I won't say the name of it, but um, that I've noticed that kind of gives people more of a, a broader scope. They're like, you could do this, you uh-huh. could do that. And like, they're way more progressive about mm-hmm. that. 
it's a lot of these treatment centers are like, this is what we've always pushed. This is what we're pushing. And right. it's frustrating because it's like even someone who I'm abstinent and mm-hmm. I'd work a 12 step program, but that doesn't mean that everybody needs to do that or everybody right. that's going to work for everybody. You know, yeah. like people and need options. Yeah. Not just, Hey, this is the only option. If you don't do this, you're going to die. and You're going to keep using like that's yeah. ridiculous. Exactly. And, and that's a scary setup, right? Like, Oh, yeah. well, okay. Well, if I fail, like the ultimatum approach. Yeah. Like if I fail at that, then I have to go back to day zero and yeah. I'm probably going to die. Right. And I have a spiritual and moral failing as yeah. a person. It's really hard to like sell that to somebody who's also like in a vulnerable state. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I think it's, I don't know. I'm, I also think, you know, within those rooms, maybe there's some shifts starting to happen around what we might think of as harm reduction stuff, like using Suboxone, for example, right? Very controversial in the rooms. Very. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and Suboxone is a, is a really effective harm reduction intervention to treat opioid use disorder, right? Like we know this, this is facts. It's, um, oh, yeah. it helps people stay alive. It helps people engage in their lives and their communities and their families. Like people on Suboxone can be functioning, healthy, happy people. Mm-hmm. And there's no imperative to get off of it. Right. I think that's like there's this idea that, that we should be moving toward a state of like pure abstinence from all chemicals. And that might not be realistic for everybody. You no. know, we only have so many years on this earth. Like how much better are we getting? I mean, I'd say, I, <laughs> yeah, you could see that as like I take medication for mm-hmm. my anxiety, depression mm-hmm. and I talk about it. Um, I don't talk about it all the time, but I've talked about it in the rooms. And there's some people, not as many, more mm-hmm. people are progressive about it and they understand, like, I'm getting this from a doctor. Like, they're prescribing it to me. I'm taking it as prescribed. I'm not, like, abusing yeah. it. I'm trying to resolve my mental health issues and uh, make it easier so- to live with them. Right. Like, you want to be alive. Yeah. And you want to live a good life. Yeah. And, and meeting a standard of perfection that existed you know that that was kind of invented like some some century ago yeah it was a while may not make sense for us now you know like i think we have we have so much more evidence around neuroscience like we have imaging we have ideas about genetics we have like all these you know theories and evidence around trauma and how that affects our brain development and like none of that existed when the book was written right or like when um the earliest days of mental health were invented. Like all of this information we have points at like, you know, there is neuroplasticity, there is healing, there is change that can happen. And also like some people don't um, get a chance to do that, you know, around opiate addiction Mm. specifically. Um, Methamphetamine addiction as well. It can cause some pretty significant brain change. That's like, you know, I mean, I hate to say it's like, you can't pray it away. Right. It's, it's real. Oh no. Um, no. And there's there's things that we do know how to do that can help people live a good life um whether or not they're using intensively, occasionally, you know. But yeah, another I mean a harm reduction example, like Suboxone's one, but also just like what we would call California sober, right? Yeah, so yeah. people that uh they quit drinking or using heroin or whatever, but they'll stick with weed and use weed sometimes or all the time to kind of help them feel better. And 
is that sobriety? No. Is it abstinence? No. But is it like keeping that person safe and alive? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like probably. Yeah. Um, and some people they, can do that. And like, yeah, I know some people who can't smoke weed. Or they, uh, I know people that have to be abstinent from all that stuff because mm-hmm. they can like, it doesn't matter. Um, right. But it's there's anything all, and everything. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all or nothing. Yeah. But there's people like. Hey, maybe I just should not do heroin anymore and right. I'll be fine or not drink anymore. That was like, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe I should just not drink liquor anymore or, you know, like, yeah. like those, I mean, I think the, the all or nothing thinking is, is it, is not a friend of progress, right? So like progress, not perfection is kind of like, it's a 12 step slogan. It's also it like, is. I could say that's a harm reduction slogan, right? It's yeah. like any positive change is any positive change. Um, one, one thing I just thought of is, uh, a really great, like, if you have to like sell harm reduction on somebody, you can be like, well, seatbelts are harm reduction, right? Like a seatbelt in the car, car is still dangerous. Car has never been not dangerous, but now it's a lot less dangerous because we have a seatbelt and an airbag and we can drive a car with less risk to our lives and safety and health. So like, there's still a risk. Um, we could argue that cars still aren't that great, right? Or like in a lot of big ways, but, but you can now drive in a car with seatbelt on an airbag. And like, if you get in a bad crash, you're probably going to live versus like 50 years ago, you're going to roll over and die. Like in those oldie songs, you know? And, and that's like, it's literally like the harm reduction, like kind of (laughs) in the world thing. Like there's so many examples of this that like work, right. That we are, we think are normal and logical things to do. Um, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I brought it around out of the out of the swamp there because I'm like, let's not like, I I have a huge appreciation for for twelve step programs and and the help that's available in those rooms, but like, you know, it's not for everybody, as they say. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, if you're, and that's another thing that I hear in the another slogan here in the rooms is keep coming back because, mm-hmm. which I think is helpful. Because I, I've had to have conversation with conversations with people who just you know they keep relapsing and they're just not, mm-hmm. um, it, it, but they want to stay. They want to be. Yeah. They want to be clean. They don't want to yeah. use this substance anymore, but they just can't get it. But we don't tell people, "Hey, come back when you're completely clean." Or, right. We don't do that, which no. is good. And I don't think it was always like that. I don't know if it was or not. I yeah. wasn't around. I haven't been around that long. But I think <laughs> we were more progressive in that way. The twelve, the rooms are. Yeah, like I think stuff's starting to shift just to like yeah. meet reality where it's at. Yeah, exactly. And like really try to get people where they're at. And and I mean that's happening in treatment. That's happening in the rooms. It's happening in mental health. Like I'm a therapist, and um, conventionally you would say like well we don't treat trauma until the the addiction is treated right like oh yeah you can't treat one without the other and it's like well that's starting to shift a lot um to see to seeing where like okay treating the trauma kind of um co-occurring with the addiction is important because there is if there's trauma and the and there's addiction there's likely a a strong connection between the two um so you can't really like take somebody's only coping mechanism from them and then expect them to sit still in therapy, you know, or like participate in therapy. That's, yeah. that's a ridiculous, like, and that's how it was handled. Um, even in like, you know, uh, even within a treatment center setting, you'd be like, okay, well first we're going to detox you and then we're going to like start therapy. And I mean, I don't know, that's, that works, but 
there is starting to be a shift to being like, okay, well, somebody with a moderate substance use issue can still engage meaningfully in therapy and mm-hmm. make change and feel better. And that might actually impact the substance use more than coercing getting clean mm-hmm. or, or quitting drinking or whatever before you engage in treatment. Um, it's starting to change a lot though. Cause we're seeing like, okay, like that doesn't always work. Let's try another way. Um, yeah. Cause we're all wired differently. And <laughs> it's just so it's not, but it's not a black and white thing at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could say that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, all of the ways people use substances, the reasons they use substances, the, the settings that they use them in, like mm-hmm. it's wildly so different. Yeah. yeah. So coming at it, um, with a, with an approach of like, I'm going to meet you where you're at. I'm going to find out what you need and try to give you that. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's, that's like, you know, the approach I try to take in therapy, but I definitely think is the harm reduction kind of way in like, okay, if you're, you know, let's say somebody's like ticking every box, right. Their life is just off the rails. They're in all kinds of problems and troubles and okay. What's the thing you really want to focus on? You know, you want to like, find somewhere to live cool let's work with that you know <laughs> like yeah we're gonna work with that you gotta meet them where they're at yes and and where the motivation is yeah exactly um, and i think like you know really harnessing somebody's motivation for change is actually like it seems like a big duh but um it at some point that was a really radical idea <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, at some to, point a lot to, of things were and unf- yeah unfortunately what but Fortunately, things are starting to shift and people are yeah, more open-minded. Most people, I should say, are a good amount of people are oh. open-minded and want to be like in conversations like this. I mean, I can't overstate how crucial it is that people have these types of conversations, you know, whatever whatever your thing is, right? If it's like you think this is if you think harm reductions what's up? And everyone in your life is like, you're enabling drug users. Like you can sit, you can sit with people and talk to them for 20 minutes and, and get your point pretty hurt, you know? And like, I've, I've gotten pretty efficient at like the elevator pitch and the, (laughs) you know, like selling this on a level on different levels. But like, it's meaningful to me that like we have effective and available resources for people that use drugs. Like that matters a lot to me. So that's why I care. And I'll, I'll make you care about it too if you're talking to me long <laughs> enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but. Uh. So what brought you into like what made you passionate about harm reduction and getting more involved? Uh, was it a personal thing or was it more of just like after volunteering, you're like, I really like doing this. I just want to do. Yeah, kind of all of the above. Like yeah. my one of my first jobs after college, and I lived in New York City, and I worked at a um, a really big nonprofit that works that it is a harm reduction nonprofit and they work with people of HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were a radical organization that kind of grew out of act up, um, which is like a HIV advocacy group in New York that did a lot of, they did a lot of radical kind of guerrilla stuff, like, like a die in on the Capitol steps, you know, this, oh, okay. this sort of like the images of like AIDS activism you see from the eighties and nineties, like that's act up and a lot of people associate it with it. So harm, uh, housing works grew out of that. And I worked for housing works like in the freaking bookstore, you know, like I just had a job at this cool bookstore in New York and it was a nonprofit, uh, you know, fundraising arm, sort of like we had thrift stores and a bookstore. And yeah, so I got to know, 
that philosophy and see kind of how it was impacting people. Like our, our participants um, at housing works, once they finished their program, they were offered a job at housing works. So like really like integrating the philosophy to like, okay, we want you to get where you're at. And then anyway, that was my first exposure. But then over the next, that was about, what was that? 2006, 2007, 2008, I worked there. And, um, over the next like five or six years, I just lost a ton of friends to overdose. Um, just incidentally, like people in my life started dropping Mm -hmm. and dying from overdose, dying from alcohol. Um, you know, kind of a lot of people real quick. And that got me very focused on like how to prevent that or how to, um, understand that differently you know I mean it was just it blew up right like so um you know and at at that point too it was like I looked around and I was like oh a lot of people I used to roll with like died Mm. so I guess I'd better think about my own stuff you know like (laughs) how am I gonna not die um and I will you know just throw in like I didn't ever get into like using opiates I didn't get into chaotic drug use of any sort but I knew that I was affiliating with and surrounded by a lot of that and and had a lot of friends that were deep in it so it was more like you know okay I want to step back from from all of this and also why is this happening (laughs) you know like I'm I was in my 20s and it's like all my homies are dying like my bandmate died or a good friend like a couple of good friends like that I'd known for years you know it's just people my we went to high school with like people from the neighborhood just all of it um and i mean that's like that was was pre-fentanyl this was the beginning of fentanyl this is the beginning of yeah okay and that's an interesting point right like fentanyl is really the the sort of target of like the blame for this um people were overdosing on black tar heroin before that yeah but it was definitely it's definitely like a lower rate and it was more associated with like long-term heavy use, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas what, I mean, one thing I could sort of throw out there is like one way to harm reductionists refer to the overdose crisis is the drug poisoning crisis, mm-hmm. which I think really shifts the burden of responsibility off of the user as an individual. Cause we think of overdose as like, oops, I took too much, you know? Yeah. And like, I over, I overestimated my tolerance and I took a little too much and now I'm, you know, whereas like drug poisoning happens when your entire drug supply is, um, infiltrated by fentanyl, right? Like it's all very, uh, and, and not just opiates at this point. Oh yeah. It's It's everywhere. Pills and powders of all sorts are, are likely to contain some amount of fentanyl or an, an analog of fentanyl, which gets really interesting, but like. Yeah, um, <laughs> we started seeing fentanyl, I think maybe, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that really started spiking, um, spiking these overdoses and continues to do so, especially now that it's in stuff that you wouldn't even look for it. Right? Yeah, like weed. Yeah. Ah. I've heard. It, yeah, it I've happened. heard. I've heard rumor. Not of it like being a weed. lot, but I've heard it. Yeah. Well, certainly stuff that's like, um, you know, s- street procured um benzos and mm, yeah molly mdma ecstasy anything like that um any street procured uh tablet pills um 
they are very likely to have fentanyl or some sort of analog in them in quantities unknown right yeah so that's like and same with like i mean any you know your your traditional kind of bag of heroin or whatever is likely to contain all kinds of shit but uh fentanyl is now you know the thing we're looking for um because even a small amount yeah cause a lot of damage oh yeah it's really powerful and that's part of why it got popular as a cut you know like it's cheap you can get it anywhere at this point like i mean i don't really know what the 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 global economics of drug trade look like but um it's being manufactured all over the world and there are trade regulations to prevent it from being imported but but folks are getting around that by like changing it chemically a little bit so like there's like something like 70 or 100 analogs of fentanyl now chemically Mm. that kind of skate under the laws yeah um and they'll sh- they'll shut one down and then another one pops up. So it's like, it's kind of like the Delta eight nine ten thing, oh, like yeah, yeah. where it's like, okay, well this drug is illegal, so we'll make it a little different, so it's not illegal. Yeah. Um, and that's how it continues to to thrive, right? And like avoid detection. And um, we we have fentanyl test strips that that exist, and we hand them out, and people are encouraged, you know, to test all drugs, any any on all drugs, test them for fentanyl with a test strip. You can order them online. You can get them from Quad Cities Harm Reduction. But um, even if it's like something you just like got at a party, right? Like, I heard an anecdotal story about a local college had a some kind of party, and a bunch of kids took like pills together like rave pills or whatever and every single one of them overdosed and luckily somebody had enough narcan in the room to get everybody awake but um nobody saw that coming right like these are like 18 19 year old kids taking a club drug at a party at college you'd think that's relatively low risk you know (laughs) um but you can overdose now from that so sorry i'm talking a lot um (laughs) i keep going but yeah my my way in was really just seeing it impact my people and i'm a musician so personal yeah like music communities got really Mm. like really hit and you know keep getting hit but um it got pretty ugly so i started thinking about that and um learning about it and then when i got to by the time I became a social worker, I got into social work school in Iowa city and, um, I saw a flyer for Iowa harm reduction coalition and I applied as a volunteer to do outreach. And she, uh, the director at the time, Sarah was like, actually like, I'm thinking you might want to be on the board. (laughs) (laughs) And I I really didn't understand that, but I think it's because I just had so many levels of like buy-in on this. Like I'd had some fundraising experience. I'd done some, you know, living, <laughs> had some people close to me yeah. and then I was becoming a social worker. So, um, made sense. Yeah. And in school I got pretty interested in hepatitis policy and how that was affecting people. Right. And like just the way hepatitis C is spreading and being dealt with is very interesting. <laughs> um, if you're a geek about it, but like, inter- well, I know it's a problem, but I don't yeah. really know. It's a, it's a bigger problem than than we are 
really talking about. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of problems, right? Yeah, yeah. you got to pick a yeah. few. <laughs> yeah, it's tough to narrow it down to what problem you want to talk about. Right? But... Like, what's your problem? <laughs> you yeah. know, what is your thing? What is your problem? Um, how are you going to get into it and make some kind of change there? But, um, yeah, he- I mean, hepatitis outbreaks typically pre- pre- predict an HIV outbreak. So if you see an area where there's a lot of hepatitis spread, um, that usually means a few things, right? There's, there's, uh, intravenous drug use, there's nasal drug use, there's uh, sharing of equipment. And then there's a lot of, you know, maybe affiliated activities like, like sex work or like, yeah. you know, things that are also going to increase like contact between people. So, um, if, if hep C is spreading in those settings, like you can bet that one person or two people with HIV can really impact that entire place very quickly yeah um prep is a huge bonus here like i don't know if if we're talking about harm reduction prep is a medication you can take to as a prophylactic against hiv yeah so like when where there is prep there is way better outcomes there um and prep was also maybe like something we could call harm reduction that's it is yeah. yeah it's it's definitely keeping some people from getting the worst of it right and like whatever behavior they're doing that's high risk um it lowers the risk so you can stay alive and still do that thing yeah 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 that's more prep i've heard i mean obviously more common in the lgbtq plus Mm -hmm. community Mm -hmm. like um yeah there's a i forget which nonprofit it is the, the project of the yeah, cities. Pro- yeah, the project. Yeah, the and, and QCHR works with them pretty closely to, like, refer, you know, anybody that's interested in testing or, or getting PrEP access. Like, we work with them a lot on that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this community's got some resources. We also lack a lot of resources, right? Like, we don't have a Planned Parenthood, um, so there's not a lot of, like, that sort of intervention, right? Like, for people that are looking for safer sex or whatever um we're kind of missing that here <laughs> yeah but uh we do have the, the project we have clocking for lgbtq kids and take teens and then we have the quad cities harm reduction and some other stuff going on but um it's it's never i mean in my mind it's never going to be enough <laughs> you know? oh yeah I mean, like to stop this train like i don't know what the train is even. yeah and uh yeah it's a little i don't want to get like really bleak on this podcast <laughs> yeah it's uh it's one of those things where you, you got i mean you, you can only do so much mm. and it's uh yeah what what you're doing and what other people in the community are doing to try to reduce that harm as much as they can and um you know fix as many problems as they can yeah it's impactful and it's totally. going to make a difference maybe slowly but at least it's doing something it's better than not doing nothing at right. all about like, it looking the other way and be like well yeah. this is a problem yeah and uh yeah something is always better than nothing is and like something as little as you know getting everyone you know to like get an arcan training you know we will set up trainings for narcan and mm-hmm. pe- workplaces or schools or whatever you know like um you can also in iowa every individual in iowa is entitled to uh one free box of narcan a year from a pharmacy so like 
you or I or anybody can walk into a pharmacy and say, I would like Narcan, please. And they will give it to you or they're supposed to give it to you. Yeah. Um, they'll take your name and stuff, but, um, that's basically like, like anyone can have it. It's, it's legal. When you say Narcan kid, how much, how much like dose wise do they give you? There's just two in every box. Um, which is sometimes enough. <laughs> yeah, because I've known people that have had to get Narcan uh-huh. multiple dosage. Yeah, that's doses. something we're seeing a lot more with the fentanyl analogs and stuff is because they're they're not so as strong. easy. They're so strong and there's so much more in the system than, you know, like the dosing of Narcan is for like what you might think of as like a normal dose of, you know, <laughs> I don't know, an opiate like strength that you might get at a hospital. Right. But we're talking about just absolutely bananas levels of of strength and, and quantity. Um, and that's something that's just like, you know, our kits have three doses in them. Um, we often will give people more than one kit if they want, um, just to sort of make sure there's enough around, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a real, it's a real wild change to try to catch up with. And, and like, I mean, basically we're doing it on a grassroots, like almost gorilla level <laughs> yeah. that, that is not necessarily like funded or endorsed by any state or local agency. Um, so it's definitely an uphill, an uphill climb. If anyone's listening from a state or local agency that wants to support quad cities harm reduction, like we want to talk to you. Um, <laughs> so where's the funding coming from now? Um, well, in the, this year we actually got, um, we got a pretty sizable grant from AIDS United, um, which is a national nonprofit that works with HIV prevention. Mm-hmm. They fund a lot of initiatives like harm reduction orgs and, um, initiatives. And, and this grant happened to be tied to COVID prevention as well. Okay. So there was a lot of federal money that was funneled through COVID, um, into grants that were used in like secondary ways. So a big part of getting the grant was, um, how much outreach we were doing around COVID and like getting people like linkage to vaccines if they wanted to, or personal hygiene supplies and masks and stuff like that. Um, but, but most of, most of all the grant is for just, you know, to fund us existing, um, we have we have staff this year like mm-hmm. start around when i started is when we first hired um paid staff to run the program so that's been incredible and it's also really like a lot more you know there's a lot more stake i guess cuz we need to keep getting funding so at this point i'm um we're writing grants with different er- organizations that that fund uh harm reduction are known to fund harm reduction there's a, there's a few nationally that like are just kind of like yeah here you go um we do some uh local fundraisers we have some donors we have some people buying merch uh, we've had a lot of people throw events and donate money to us th- from their events and that's that's like great mm-hmm. um birthday fundraisers on facebook like you name it you know um yeah we're kind of like collecting everything we can get our hands on to really just keep uh keep existing Mm-hmm. It's not even like, I mean, growth, growth is a goal. <laughs> yeah. But right but, now you're sustaining. <laughs> yeah. Like we're at a sustaining and, and frankly, like, I think what we have going on is actually really impactful. We're, we're able to like work with a lot of people and, you know, catch a lot of like areas of need and respond to them. Um, 
So yeah, we're getting funding from AIDS United. I think we have another we have another six months on that grant and hopefully something else happens in the meantime. Yeah. You know, that's the reality of like nonprofits too. It's just like you're here today, gone tomorrow. Like if the the gods deem you unfit for a grant. Yeah. Um, but like really super stoked. I took that grant writing class in in grad school, man. (laughs) Yeah. So you went to grad school for For social work. For social work. Okay. Yeah. And then when did you start, uh, becoming a therapist then? Um, I did my internship at a local, uh, private inpatient treatment facility. Okay. Um, and so I was working with people there doing individual therapy, family therapy, and then treatment and discharge planning. I also ran some groups. Um, so that was my first like real boots on the ground uh, job, I guess. And then I I was a therapist in uh, Moline at um, Transitions, which is a fantastic local uh, mental health. Like, yeah, I know about you know, yep. Transitions is the best so I worked at transitions um for a couple years and got my licensure training there and was working with a lot of different stuff there and um now I'm I'm working uh virtually I work from home at a uh for an employee assistance program so it's okay yeah shorter term therapy um I'm really loving it but yeah I mean I don't I don't intend to stop anytime soon with that that's my that's my job harm reduction is my like hobby <laughs> more passion it's projects, more of a yeah. yeah and it's also like a way to work on a macro level i think that um in social work there's a lot of people working in direct service and case management and therapy but but a lot of the the, the skills we have are pretty broad like you can apply them to policy or like management or administration and stuff so it's it's nice to have like a, a balance like in my profession mm-hmm. where I can do that sort of, you know? Yeah. So I've tried to bring this up as many times as I can on <laughs> my podcast. Uh, so that I'm glad you brought up employee assistance program. So what is the employee assistance program? Cause people don't understand that they even have access to it. Oh, like how, Oh yeah. You're like a benefits admin. I'm a benefits. Oh, admin, we're so going to get all about so ta- nerdy. Yeah. yeah. I'm all about talking about the employee assistance program. Yeah. So, so many people don't know what it is. They don't realize yeah. the benefits of it. So yeah. An employee, this is a great question. Employee assistance program is a benefit. Um, many employers provide, um, if you work for a bigger company, you almost definitely have it yeah. or AKA EAP. That's what you'd be looking for. Yeah. An EAP is, um, free therapy that you have, that your employer has already paid for that you can access for free, um, immediately. And that's usually, um, somewhere like five sessions. So f- something like three to five sessions is kind of an average, but the one I work for is, is virtual, and it's it's getting very popular, and and some employers are offering twenty to twenty five sessions a year. I've seen that, yeah. which is like full blown therapy for yeah. a year. I mean, what I do doesn't usually take all of that that time, but um, you know, if you are having a problem or a crisis or needing to talk to someone, like, and you have an EAP, just do it. It's basically like low barrier free therapy. Yeah, that you can just have. Um, and somebody's already getting paid for that, right? They're getting paid whether or not you show up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, 
um, it's been really wild because the one I work for, um, it's called Lyra and we, we have a lot of big companies that send our clients or send us participants or, you know, clients. And, um, it's a huge diverse group of people like that maybe wouldn't even get therapy. I know about Lyra. Yeah. Yeah. Lyra's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the newer ones that I've heard about. Mm hmm. They yeah. haven't been around for a long time, have they? No, it's fairly new. Okay. Yeah. I'm not really sure if I'm supposed to talk about Lyra on a podcast, but I'm just going to say it's a great place to work, and it's we offer a really great um, array of services to people that are already paid for by your employer. So yeah. if you have Lyra and you have, or you have any EAP, like chances are it's worth your time. Yeah, I think getting therapy is just this like maze for a lot of people, right? Like, yeah. How do I do it? And that's and, a good way to get your foot in the door mm-hmm. easily into therapy. Totally. Yeah. Cause I'll tell you what therapists know each other <laughs> and we're all going to like be like, Oh, go here, go here, go here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, the access thing is always a question, but I, I think EAPs help with that a lot. Yeah. And yeah, I try to bring it up as much as possible because it's one of those things like it's just like glossed over. Mm hmm. Uh, because it's a free benefit. You don't really have yeah. to enroll in it yourself. You, yeah. You know, it's and, just one of those things that. And this is a good thing to point out too, is like there were laws passed um, roughly 10 years ago that create uh, like health insurance parity for drug and alcohol treatment. So if you are having a hard time and you want treatment for those things, like your insurance has to cover it. Um, <laughs> it is not legal for them to not cover it. Mm-hmm. And you can get leave from work to go do that. Um, there's lots of there's lots of ways that it's kind of protected. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still difficult to get in and get good treatment, but like it's more possible than I think people realize. Oh yeah, like the barriers are lower than they are made out to be. I think even if you're Medicaid, like Medicaid treatment centers exist and you can get in and do it. Yep. Yeah. Yep, that is definitely true because I've seen, yeah. I should just probably blanket this with our whole entire healthcare and mental health and insurance system is totally a a bummer. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. It is not working well for many people, but within it are lots of people that do want to help. There are are things that you can utilize, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. They may not be crystal clear. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, because some people, you know, avoid therapy or avoid treatment because uh-huh. of just flat out because of the cost mm-hmm. or they're afraid they're going to lose their job or. And, and there are some legitimate barriers, you know, yeah. like, I mean, if you have, if you're a single parent, right? Like, oh, yeah. Going to treatment for 30 days is really going to change your life um, in yeah. some ways that might not be in your control hopefully not right hopefully there's somebody that can help and yeah there's lots of you know jobs too where you can't get that leave or whatever but um i think you know one thing that i have noticed changing is people's awareness of it as like a real legitimate problem yeah (laughs) and like you know you'd be surprised how many people are impacted by addiction um or have a loved one who has been through it or is in it um and you know that's starting to just be like a more normal experience like that we all kind of have a reference point for like oh yeah i've mm-hmm. i've experienced that personally or i have a friend yeah. or my brother sister parent aunt yeah. uncle yeah, neighbor somewhere. whatever yeah. like um 
yeah, it's, it's circling closer for a lot of people and that's a bad thing, but it also is a good thing for like compassion and empathy, you know? Um, cause once you've been through something with your loved ones, like hopefully, you know, you know more about it and what it's like. More understanding. Yeah. So what's something from a therapist standpoint that you've been noticing outside of, I mean, obviously we know addiction's a problem. We've uh-huh. already covered that pretty well. <laughs> we know that's a, we know that's an issue, but what's something like maybe that you've noticed as like a, mm-hmm. as a trend, uh, that you've noticed a lot of people bringing up like, oh, I'm really struggling with this specifically. Yeah. Uh, like what isn't really? But yeah, good point. I guess that's I mean, a tough question. One, one way I'd answer that is like there are very few problems in this world that that normal average everyday people have that can't be solved with like some extra money and somebody to talk to. Um, it's it's often that that simple, right? Like there are problems we face as people that are just like, you need support and you might need resources. Mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of my experience as a therapist points me back to like, yeah, people don't have enough money and that creates a lot of stressors and, and bad circumstances. And, and they kind of, you know, start an echo chamber of despair yeah. <laughs> and like um, more money would, would help a lot of people out of what we would call mental health problems. Like, but, but, Otherwise, I mean, trend wise, like I really think um, I'm going to call it out just straight up. I think TikTok is a big problem. Yeah. I think TikTok is I, I have like really almost conspiracy level theories about this, but like I think TikTok is profoundly addictive and it changes your interaction with your phone and, and the world in ways that like I don't think are good. Um, <laughs> and I've I've had a lot of people like one of the questions I now ask at an intake is what's your relationship with your phone and what apps do you spend the most time using? Mm -hmm. And I will say like just anecdotally the relationship between a lot of TikTok and a lot of anxiety is, is extremely like relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something about it. I feel attacked. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) There is something about how it works where it kind of predicts, it kind of reads your mind a little bit. Yeah, you know? it's weird. And it keeps handing you stuff that brings you in. Like it draws you down into like itself a little bit. Um, and it, I, I mean, I, I know lots of people have said to me, yeah, I'll just open my phone and look at TikTok. And then three hours later, like I'm still here, you know? And that to me is a dangerous, that is like a substance, right? It is oh, like a, yeah. it is not a, not a healthy or happy way to like spend hours of your day. So if if you're finding yourself with a phone problem, like I would take I mean, it, ser- I would take it seriously. Too. Like you yeah. could be on, you could be on Reddit, you could be on Instagram. Yeah. Um, but like the scrolling TikTok is different to me because of how it the algorithm works and like yeah. how it seems to like it notices how long you're watching something, like what you scroll past and what you stop on, and then it gives you more of that. Yeah. Like it's that precise, and and um. Yeah, I mean, I think phones in general are are becoming like, I think we're all becoming aware of how intrusive they are and like how much time they take from us and and also like money in a lot of ways. Like they're they're costing money because they're constantly trying to sell you something now. So um, mental health wise, like I definitely, (laughs) I don't think there's any argument for increasing your your social media or phone use. And I think in a few no. years we'll see like the numbers on that coming, coming clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
and I mean, with that comes like a lot of people feel really isolated. Um, COVID has still been, you know, we still haven't really come out of the cloud from that. Yeah. And like, there's a lot of people that, that were totally isolated for, for actual years and maybe still are. And like coming back from that, like, what does that look like? How do you reconnect with folks? How do you make new friends? as an mm. adult, you know, yeah. uh, just a lot of people feeling really cut off, um, from each other and disconnected. Yeah. And there's not a lot of places to gather in the ways that like might facilitate that. So it's, uh, definitely something I think of as a theme is like support and isolation and how those can change your outcomes. Yeah. I could go on about like trends. Oh my God. <laughs> so, yeah. Social media in general. Yeah. TikTok yeah. is scary. I get it. Yeah. The other side of I was of very it. hesitant about yeah. getting on TikTok. And yeah. Not, and I know why now. I, I wiped it off my phone almost immediately. I was like, this is twisted. Like this is like the ring from Lord of the Rings, right? Like you just start getting like, oh, like I need that. Yeah. But um, the, the thing I will say about TikTok too is there is a trend. I think it's still very popular right now to self-diagnose severe mental health conditions via tiktok videos um like oh, yeah. uh big big hot point ones are adhd autism um bipolar disorder schizophrenia borderline personality disorder and um dissociative identity disorder or like multiple personalities so there's a lot of people on tiktok making videos about those things that are not experts or professionals nor are they actual sufferers. <laughs> um, and there's there's been some research studies about it, yeah. like like surveys of these types of videos um, instructing people on their symptoms, basically. And, and just like the amount of false information that was discovered was like unbelievable. So, so as a therapist, I see a lot of clients coming in who have self-diagnosed with a severe condition or a, an unusual condition. <laughs> and they're very convinced that they have it because mm. someone on the internet told them that this is what it looks like. Yeah. And I mean, arguments could be made that a lot of that stuff is underdiagnosed, but like, yeah, it's also just really like troubling, um, to try to give, you know, I think doctors experience this too, but like trying to, to be you're like, you're like, I actually did a lot of training and at school and learned a lot and read a lot of books and now I know more about this than most people except if you watched a video on TikTok about it right yeah. like you're okay I got it like uh, you're the expert yeah, so that's yeah. that's that's uh, a so personal that. frustration that like yeah there's just a lot of people making stuff up frankly and uh oh I know <laughs> it's <'Cause> <laughs> it's not always helpful because <laughs> I'm uh pretty engaged and becoming more engaged in the ocd community online because uh -huh. yeah i've had ocd i was diagnosed with ocd when i was like 13 mm. so i've been dealing with that for a long time but as far as advocacy and um i try to make i'm trying to make more videos of it online like mm -hmm. from my just my experience yeah not like yeah. kind of like what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, but i see but yeah but what happens um and we have a very – there's a very strong OCD community online. There was recently – anytime there's any kind of article that comes out about OCD and it has misinformation in mm. it, there is a swarm <laughs> of people that just 
jump on it and just good yeah that's great it's awesome because ocd is also one that's so people don't understand it yeah like it's misunderstood and the label gets thrown onto all kinds of stuff in annoying ways yeah yeah Yeah. i think when yeah really having it and and you know (laughs) doing something a lot are very different yeah you can be obsessed with something and not have ocd it's pretty uh pretty normal pretty normal yeah Oh, that's interesting. So you've been, you have like some connection to, um, other people with it. Yeah. yeah. I've gotten to know people, uh, within mainly because of Instagram actually, not cool. even, um, and, uh, I have a friend who's a therapist at no CD. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've been following the no CD, uh, platform for a while. I actually, yeah. um, did a, when I was blogging, did a, blog post about them a long time ago before they started doing therapy it was just an app for a community for people mm-hmm. with ocd and that's how it started and now they're doing therapy and now they have funding and now they have yeah endorsements howie mandel's their spoke per- spokesperson <laughs> and oh my god howie mandel has ocd yeah oh bad. wow yeah yeah um, did you ever watch monk i watched a little bit of it but what, yeah what do you think about monk so you got it Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 It's uh the funniest part about it, not the funniest, but like yeah, just the misconceptions. Uh mm-hmm. I actually read I've made a video and deleted a video about this already. Uh <laughs> there and this was the most recent uprising in the uh O C D community where they were like, We gotta go after this. Uh and it wasn't like post this guy's address it wasn't anything like that like this guy did an article on it was an opinion post Mm -hmm. thank god it was in the opinion section because it was just really bad um about ocd and its ties he was trying to make a correlation between ocd and extremism Mm. like extremism like as in like be like being either being a terrorist or being like a super crazy QAnon person or like wow and trying to put those two things together because because oh, with OCD you become obsessed with something, so therefore you can become an extremist. And I was just like, "What is going on?" That's so like it was off su- base. It was oh such God. a it was such a reach. And yeah. he referenced like one study done by these two. I don't even know what their credentials are. People in Canada, and I was just like. They're like, yeah, according to researchers and according to this, I'm like, I'm like what? Woof. It was so frustrating. Oh, that is the worst, though, when there's like one rinky dink study that's like not even valid. Yeah. And people will be like, research shows. Like, yeah. I one mean, study. God, if there's anything I want people to do, it's understand how to look at a research project. Like, like how to, un- what's the sample size? What did they do? You know, like, yeah. Just scanning the like when you look at an academic paper and you look at the first couple pages, it'll tell you all about the experiment. And if you get good at that, you can basically decide for yourself whether research in quotes is like worth your time. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, if you found oh, fifteen people in Canada were studied over the course of six months, like, but we're gonna write an article about it, you know. And it Oof. was yeah, and it's uh oh boy. So many people, yeah, within that within the OCD <laughs> community have gone after that. Good. And yeah, because there was recently uh, 
a I don't even know what the guy did. I I think he might have. He definitely did something really bad. I think he might have be. I don't know if he's a serial killer, but he murdered someone or multiple people. I don't know the story, but he used OCD as a defense. Oh gosh, yeah. And I was like, that's not it. <laughs> yeah, that like, ain't it. Like, dude. Well, yeah, and like, oh boy, that's just. It was a reach. Yeah, uh, and. I think that's what may have sparked this opinion piece. Mm-hmm. So like, oh. Oh, okay. Like, oh, we're going to connect this to yeah. other kinds of extreme acts of violence or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Well, like, you know, intrusive thought style, like that's real, right? Like there oh, yeah. are, there's like, but, but it's unusual for people to do those things. The thing <laughs> is, and also in this article, he said, uh, I think he just, I'll give it, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt of just saying this incorrectly, but mm-hmm. he said people with OCD have thoughts about wanting to do this, this, and that. Like, uh, nobody wants to do that. There's no, no want. There, the thoughts <laughs> exist. They happen. They're they're called intrusive for they're, a reason. <laughs> yeah, they're intrusive. They're un unwanted thoughts. Like mm-hmm. the fact that he said wanted. Mm-hmm. That was the. It was towards the beginning of the article. That was when I was like, I am angry. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I am frustrated. Oh, this is... I could see that. Yeah. It's really not, yeah, yeah not working like, for people. What? Yeah. Like, I, I guess that's like, you know, really nobody with an, a mental illness wants their mental illness. There's been or... some, <laughs> also some articles about benefits of having OCD and like, oh, geez. No. Yeah. I, no, I don't want. I don't. I wouldn't wish this on anyone. Like, I don't want anyone to have this. It's not yeah. beneficial to me. It's been very annoying. I I to put it lightly. <laughs> I work with um, clients with borderline personality disorder, mm-hmm. and I'm really I'm pretty passionate about it. I'm also trained in DBT, and like, I love borderline personality disorder work because it's so stigmatized and it's so crappy to have that diagnosis. Like oh, yeah. the system just shits on you for having that diagnosis and there's people in my life that have that have had that diagnosis and I'm like yeah like what does this actually mean you know it's in there's a lot of argument for it to be like this is this is a trauma a complex trauma response that develops into like somebody's you know coping with the world and um, we've decided to bucket it as like a personality disorder that makes it really hard to get accurate treatment or diagnosis but also to like live you know um but there's so many of those articles it's like benefits of having bpd and it's like yeah there's no there's no real benefit to this like this seems to very much suck and be difficult and like (laughs) it's it's a stretch to say that there's like personality traits that are always there as a benefit you know yeah i don't know about that i mean I don't know. Maybe you want to feel. I don't. Yeah, I understand. There's like you're trying to look to, at the positives of things. Yeah, but like it's not like something you, you want to have. No, <laughs> it's definitely not something you want to have. And if you have it, you want it to be better. Yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The misconceptions of. It's yeah. Well, we're like in the boomtown era of mental health, right? Like. This is the this is the moment where it is becoming destigmatized and openly spoken and written about and mm-hmm. like the idea of going to Everybody therapy. Has an opinion and- yeah. Like so millennials, like I'd consider myself a 
millennial Gen X cusp person, but like millennials are, are sort of oriented to therapy as like a fairly normal thing to do. Yeah. But younger generations are like, yeah, you just go to therapy. Like it's cool to go to therapy, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. and, um, and there's no, there's much less like gendered stigma around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know Gen X and up, you you could see like real strong um, resistance to therapy among men, oh. and like different kinds of even religious groups. Like certain religious groups or or ethnic groups do not really respond to like you know they don't want to go to therapy because there's a lot of stigma in yeah. that community you know yeah, and, you're and weak or whatever right and it's starting to shift to be like yeah this is a normal thing to do mental illness is common it is actually more common than not and and going to see someone to talk about it is not a problem but um we're in that like real gold rush of <laughs> like yeah everybody get on the train you know like somebody's got to make some money here and <laughs> it's yeah. uh kind of gross frankly but it's also like i mean on the other side of it it's like expanding access and expanding normalizing and destigmatizing is is a good thing i want that i want people to be able to like get on the phone and call a therapist and get good treatment when they need to or want to and like you know i think we're that we're getting (laughs) we might be getting there i don't know in a weird way yeah yeah but yeah normalizing all this stuff and, and it also sometimes gets kind of icky. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, maybe you should just not say that. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. You're doing more harm than good by saying that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like. Yeah. Like, oh, it's. <laughs> and yeah, like ch- checking your facts and checking your sources is always worthwhile. But especially like if you read a ringy dink article about mental health, or addiction, it's probably good to like notice where it's coming from or who paid for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of, it's pretty easy to start a blog and to start writing. Oh, and... I should mention this on this podcast. Cause this is one of my favorite, my favorite arguments to have about, um, harm reduction and drug use is like, um, this idea that, so there's a lot of high profile news articles about, um, law enforcement touching fentanyl and needing to be narcan um there's this is actually like a trend among mm. uh it appears to be a trend among law enforcement to create these scenarios where they have quote touched fentanyl and then overdosed from touching it mm-hmm. um it appears to only happen to law enforcement and no one else um <laughs> weird yeah it's like nobody else who touches fentanyl overdoses from it but um, but if you're a cop and you accidentally touch fentanyl and you need to be narcan and go home and take a bath or whatever, like this is a, this is a news story. So this is definitely something I've seen, not just around here. I mean, I think I did see one around here, but like this, uh, idea that fentanyl touching fentanyl can kill you or overdose you is, is untrue. It has to be ingested somehow. Yeah, you have to get it inside your body. So it has to touch a mucous membrane. Um, You have to eat it, inject it, or put it up your butt or your nose or in your, you know, yeah, that's, those are the ways in, um, (laughs) in in your blood. Um, It has to go inside of you. (laughs) Yeah. So even if you like had a hangnail on your finger and you touched fentanyl with your hand, um, you are going to be okay. Um, But if, you know, this, this, idea that this happens a lot to cops is very like 
it's a very interesting like um kind of PR decision like because uh it's definitely making a case that like I think in a roundabout way, it's they're trying to say like you know this is why drug users are dangerous, mm. is because you might accidentally touch their drugs, and that's why we need to like police them very heavily. You know, Weird. Um, Weird. I don't really know what the idea is, Weird but stretch. but I'm just gonna let everybody know, decisively and definitively, like way. I I'm kind of an expert, like a little bit. And you can't touch fentanyl and, and die or overdose um, unless it goes inside of your body. Yeah. Yeah. Unless unless you're a cop, apparently. Weird. <laughs> yeah. Also, if you're overdosing or if someone around you is, you're going to know. Well, if you're overdosing, you're not going to know because you're going to be not conscious. But somebody's going to Somebody's going to notice that you are um, unconscious, turning blue, maybe shaking um, and, you know, experiencing a bunch of other symptoms. But like these um, these situations of touching fentanyl have not included those factors. Weird. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Don't want to get political about yeah, police. But yeah. like this is something I've seen that a few times that it's like, yeah, it's not real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not real. Kind of maybe a scare tactic of some sort. Seems that way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's odd. Quite. Very weird. <laughs> Quite weird. Well, it's good to know for people that may not have realized it that. Oh yeah. If they come in contact with fentanyl, that it's not going to affect them. Yeah. Same thing with like if you encounter a syringe in the world, um, it can't hurt you unless you poke yourself with it. Yeah. So if you see a syringe like on the playground or in a bath in a garbage can or it's probably good to grab it with something like yeah like not you, bare hands, you but pick it up with something else and put it somewhere safe like inside a soda bottle or a, a detergent bottle or, or like you know even um sometimes like a thick paper bag like something that something so it can't poke, poke through else. yeah like if there's a lot of people that'll like scream and shriek like it's a mouse kind of yeah if they see a syringe like syringe can't move it can't hurt you unless you you poke yourself with it. So um, it's cool if you get it out of the way and, and put it away in a way that is safe. But um, yeah, like a stray syringe won't, um, it cannot hurt you unless you make it hurt you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good to know. That's yeah. Formative. Yeah. Just some little PSAs here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, we should probably get to the point where, yeah, we're, I'm trying not to run over time. I've been doing <laughs> that's been a problem mm. since I started recording at home because I'm like, yeah, because I used to record at a studio where I would be timed. And oh, wow. have to pay extra mm-hmm. or they were pretty cool, like about me going over time, but I didn't overdo it. Yeah. This is a much like harder scenario to be like, all right, wrap it I up. need to watch my time. Yeah. Yeah. And it enables uh, me to not have to edit a bunch of stuff, too, if I. Cool. Because the last podcast I recorded was two hours and forty eight minutes. Oof, that's too long. Yeah, and yeah. I did. A, I like cut it in half. I'm I'm like a one hour or less podcast yeah. consumer. Like if if it's two people talking, and it goes off the rails, like ah, I can't. But but sometimes it's you know a good interview is a good interview. I like to stick with yeah an hour an hour and a half at the most. Is yeah, my, been my sweet spot. Well, um, I hope I wasn't too boring. No, I can I don't get think so. very. I know I can get really like geeked on something, really and get really boring about it, and people are like, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> you know, call this passion. 
<laughs> yeah, I think people can appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it was very informative. And uh, I think people can learn a lot from this. And yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. It's uh, my pleasure. And, you know, if anybody needs Narcan or needles or knows somebody that does, or if you want a Sharps container installed at your place of work or business, um, we can do that too. We can come and collect them. So for people that are listening that aren't in the Quad Cities, oh, yeah. <laughs> what? Just um, most of them are, yeah. but there are people that are outside yeah. the Quad Cities that listen. Outside the Quad Cities, I would absolutely look into, um, you know, if you have a local or regional harm reduction org, uh, sometimes a public health department will do sharps containers, but for stuff like needles and Arcan, it's usually going to come from a harm reduction organization. And for the most part, we're out there, you know, mm-hmm. um, we will also we can mail things to people in the in the region. So in uh like if you're in like a more rural part of Illinois or something and you want to get in touch, we can uh discuss, you know, what you might be needing and help you out with that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What's the what's the website? Is it just QC Harm Reduction? Um on Facebook and Instagram it's QC Harm Reduction and I believe our website is odawalk.com or dot org. It's odawalk.org. That was, it was originally started as an overdose, um, vigil. Okay. So, um, yeah, we do a vigil every year on overdose awareness day too. That's a pretty nice event and yeah, happy to field any, any questions or inquiries. All right. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs>